Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are my co-hosts Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today's episode is the first part of a trilogy of shows on Ronald Reagan, the 40th President of the United States. This show will focus on Reagan's younger days as an actor in Hollywood, his time in the military during World War II and his post-war years. Ronald Wilson Reagan was born on February 6, 1911 in Tampico, Illinois and was the youngest of two children. His father, Jack, was a salesman of Irish Catholic descent, while his mother, Nell, was a Protestant. He grew up in a fairly liberal household, one that opposed the Ku Klux Klan, supported relief for the working poor, and believed in racial equality. Though it must be noted, Jack was known to take the local stage in blackface at times, so take everything with a pinch of salt, I guess. Ronald, nicknamed Dutch by his father for his Dutch-like features, grew up to become a handsome young man interested in team sports, politics, and theatre, After college, he became a sports announcer on radio shows, using his gift for storytelling and improvising to full effect, and he eventually became an announcer for the Chicago Cubs baseball team. While travelling with the Cubs to California in 1937, Reagan took a screen test that led to a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers Studio. Reagan joined the military in 1937 as a reserve and was ordered into active duty in 1942, where he ultimately ended up in the first motion picture unit, where his unit made more than 500 training and propaganda films for the army. In a couple of months, you'll be playing for keeps, so you better start right now. A chino lounge suit you're wearing is all right for indoor sports, but it wouldn't be much help with a fire in the cockpit. Yes, sir. You don't want to get too casual, Lieutenant. You fly nice and easy, you get into bad habits. Remember, clothes make the fighter pilot. Always wear your helmet, coveralls, gloves, and boots. That's an order. Yes, sir. Reagan returned to Hollywood after the war and became president of the Screen Actors Guild. In 1964, he garnered national attention for his A Time for Choosing speech as part of the campaign for Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater. He would go on to become governor of California in 1966 and eventually president in 1980 after beating incumbent president Jimmy Carter in a landslide victory, winning 44 of the 50 states. He won re-election in 1988 winning 49 of the 50 states. Reagan died on June 5th, 2004, age 93, and is an icon to the right in America. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and I, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. Vaughn, can you start by telling us a bit about the kind of start of Reagan's career and just maybe setting the, the, the scene for his early years in the business? Right, yeah, of course. Um, so Reagan, um, he was determined after college to, um, he's like famously quoted as saying that he wanted to make at least $5,000 a year um, within five years of graduating college. Um, so he was he was very driven to 
get a good career, but he wasn't necessarily sure what that career would be. Um, and he was kind of advised by one of his first bosses at, at um, a sporting goods store to find a business that was doing well, despite the depression. Um, and radio was kind of that industry for him that, that really sparked his interest. So he went to Chicago, tried to get a job there. Everyone there kind of laughed at him and was like, you have zero experience. Why would we hire you? Um, so is the communications business. So he left out for um, Iowa and he started in radio there as a sports host, um, commentating on games and, and whatnot in 1932. And this turned out to be like really lucrative for him because he, he was really good at it. Um, he is like most, most famously from this time period was his skill at reconstructing baseball games. And he had never been to a major league game, but um, he would get these kind of transcripts and live telegrams of a live game going on somewhere in the country. And he was really good at kind of making it a very um, powerful experience for the listener. He was really good with imagery. So he would reconstruct these games from just very short lines of um, from telegrams. And he really honed this skill of um, being an imaginative orator uh, that, that obviously kind of grew throughout his life into the great speaker as president and uh, governor and whatnot. So this was a really good um, kind of foothold for him to embrace this this kind of speaking skill that he had and it turned into him wanting to do much more of this work um so he went out to hollywood on suggestion of um some from some of his bosses and connections in iowa and he kind of attributes it to luck but um he acquired a seven-year contract with warner bros um through his connections and that really started his hollywood career so he was in a lot of b-list films um as a young actor they weren't great they were normally run like in conjunction with an a-list film as b-list films always were um and his roles weren't really amazing but they were very American. Um, so very early in his career, he started to become synonymous with quote-unquote Americanness or Americanism. And in, in these films, um, there was a, a strong connection and, some, and frequently a line was delivered with quote-unquote the American way which was also popularized at the time with the start of Superman in, I think, 37. Mm -hmm. um, so as a very young kind of professional, he was already honing these skills of impressive oration and this connection with kind of American sentimentality and, and 
the the visual embodiment of what it is to be an all-American kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Warner Brothers really latched onto this uh, vision of Reagan, uh, especially in the late 30s um, when fascism was very popular in Europe. Um, Hollywood felt it was their duty to kind of create this unofficial propaganda in 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 some periods unofficial um that's a bigger question but anyway. <laughs> um, so they they felt it was their duty to like put out material that was very american so he started getting even more popular with his b-list films as being this kind of all-american athletic looking um very like strong american figure a symbol, yeah. A symbol, exactly. He he was like Hollywood's Superman, kind of. Yeah, um, yeah he was he was doing this um, despite actually being a B-list star, as Vaughn has said, and also um, he he did star in some movies that were, I would say, A-list movies. But he wasn't he wasn't really he was in those movies, but he wasn't the star. He played. Um, in a in a movie with uh, Humphrey Bogart, Swing Swing Your Lady. He played in movies with Betty Davis, Dark Victory. But he was always in the sort of also ran or sort of a character actor role. He was almost like a character actor at the time, and yeah. he really seemed to have a lot of of um, range. He was in movies like um, A Cowboy from Brooklyn with uh, O'Brien, and um, he would struggle really to get out a lot of the 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 lines or to to to, to change himself and to bring in different intonations and, and things like that and he would be helped along in in, in many of those kinds of um films and uh, just like vaughn says you know he was in movies like uh newt rockney which were you know it was like it was a big movie about a f- american football player an all-american star, star again star, starring o'brien and and um, Reagan was in the position as a, a figure called George Gipp, who who was part of the team, but caught pneumonia and didn't get to play. And mm-hmm. and he's he's in his um, hospital bed, and the the lead character comes to him, and he's in the 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 lead, and then they, they you know they wanted him to play, but he couldn't get the chance to play. And he says, um, "Well, you know, you guys at least uh, get one for the Gipper," which was a his, which is where his um his his nickname the Gipper comes from, yep. which he used mm-hmm. um many times in the future, yep. and I think he he also exemplified a sort of anti-crime all-American sentiment, especially at a time this this was the the period of uh, prohibition really, and and there was a lot of um crime started to appeal to a lot of people, people like Lucky Luciano become incredibly successful. And um, so he was in movies, B-list movies, like Code of the Secret Service, which exemplified the sort of American ideals of, you know, law and order. And so he, so as uh, Vaughan says, he, he merges as this sort of um, all-American guy who's, who's, who's really about, he really exemplifies law and order, truth and strength and he- heroism and character. But his his actual acting talents and acting chops weren't that they weren't that broad. That there's a movie called King's Row that he was in, which um, was uh, about a sort of a, a sort of it was a difficult 
um, situation bet between a father who was who was a surgeon and his daughter and and reagan's character was in love with the daughter but the father was carrying on an incestuous relationship with the daughter and, and this movie almost didn't get made and the the senses were quite you know this was in many ways unlike the types of movies that reagan had had really been in and he has a lot he and the surgeon actually has to remove Reagan's legs because he he hates Reagan. Reagan gets into an uh, into a accident and then the the surgeon removes his, his legs and Reagan has to he wakes up and he looks at his uh, feet and he's and he has to say, "Where's the the rest of me?" And he really struggled in order to get into mindset because it was a it was a movie with a lot of um a lot of madness that people had a lot of different Freudian tics and and Reagan really struggled to get that but he he managed to say the line and he was really thinking that he might be able to win an oscar because of this uh this picture and and the i think the picture was nominated for an oscar but the warner brothers pushed uh cagney for the for the oscar and at that time but they did increase increase the salary so up to probably 1942 just before uh, his entrance into the war there's a sense that his 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 although he's a B-list actor, his his he does have a a strong career emerging, and 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 both Reagan and his wife Jane Wyman told um, Warner that they were very happy about the industry and and all the the, the future that they were going to have in in the, in the industry at the time, and and at this time. Unlike in the 50s when Wyman started to eclipse Reagan, um, Reagan actually had a much stronger career than her. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. There's a, a joke that uh, Reagan said, uh, kind of looking back, that on the, the B-movies that the producers didn't want them good, they wanted them Thursday, which I think is quite a nice yeah. line. Uh, can maybe sums up the attitude to some of his uh, some of the B-films he was in. Yeah, and then he, he sort of um, played in many... Uh, different movies like uh, Santa Fe Trail is an understudy to Errol Flynn mm. and, and Reagan never seemed to have the same I think um, sort of sexual energy that 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 Flynn sort of um, radiated on the screen and um, he was quite different from Errol Flynn he Humphrey Bogart and Errol Flynn both actually quite kind of made fun of him because they saw Reagan as this boy scout you know when when Reagan actually he eventually divorced um, Jane Wyman. Flynn came up to Reagan and said, "Well, why are you so upset? I mean, think about all the ladies you're going you're going to see." And Flynn Flynn was famous for actually not coming to um, to, to the set. Sometimes he would just like take drunken binges. He's also famous for actually going to Spain um, during the um, this Spanish Civil War in order to see how the communists were doing, which many people thought that might blacklist Errol yeah. Flynn but the, 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 and Flynn was a real contrast to um, Reagan's career in, 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 the, in these early years although Flynn did seem to be threatened by Reagan in, in, in some scenes and although I, and I think Reagan never really quite understood that but there, there was a sense that possibly this is the kind of career that Reagan might have had he, he almost got on Catholic um, cast in Casablanca mm. um, but it, the part actually eventually went to Humphrey Bogart so yeah he hovered on this almost like also ran territory near the stars doing these B movies becoming a, a sort of 
figure that that characterized a lot of American life, but not really making it as a big uh, movie star. Interesting. That rivalry with Errol Flynn is something that's really interesting to kind of look into a lot because it was very personal for Reagan. He he really tried to show up Errol Flynn as much as he could in private and public. Um, and I, I think it's just a kind of interesting, like, personal vendetta that he had. Um, and that, that film, Santa Fe Trail, is just mind-blowing to me. Because this, again, this might be a different conversation, but... Um, I think it really plays into the Americanness of Reagan in these films um, that they really kind of rewrote history with that film. Um, it centers on John Brown, who was an abolitionist in the Civil War, and he's he's painted in American history in textbooks as this kind of psychopath. Um, and this film, Santa Fe Trail, it was made in 1940 uh, by M Michael Curtis, who also made Casablanca uh, later on. But Santa Fe Trail makes John Brown look like Hitler. And that's a like John Brown was an abolitionist and he, he was a he stood up for civil rights during the Civil War. He was a white man. Um, and he's, he's just an ardent kind of human rights activist, but Hollywood chose to portray him as Hitler with Reagan fighting against him. Um, and I think that's just a very, very interesting, important thing to remember when talking about Reagan as this early actor, that he was being used to manipulate American history in these films. Um, and I well, think that idea really kind of got to Reagan that he started embodying this very kind of patriotic symbol and seeing America in this, this idealized, romanticized, kind of revered way. Uh, do, you, do you think that did shape any of his political views going forward after that, this, this sort of I don't know, maybe more simplistic view of kind of America within the, the world's uh, kind of the world's reach, as, as it were, as, as to how America should behave or how America should be seen? I for sure do. Um, if if we're talking even even more kind of some of his patriotic work um, in the following years during the war, uh he was deployed to San Francisco, so not far at all. Um, mm. he, he wasn't fit for active service because he was practically blind. He had really, really mm -hmm. poor eyesight. Um, so he couldn't be a soldier. And instead, he was hired by the fir first motion picture unit to create propaganda films for, for the war, for the war effort. And he played in his kind of reputation as this all-American guy, he started playing these very American figures in mm -hmm. war propaganda films. 
and that really just kind of solidified all of all of those emotions about America for him that that this was how he was serving his country um, because he couldn't go to war and that really that also really stung for him that he couldn't physically be fighting for his his country Um, so he took this as his patriotic duty to make these films um, and really portray this this good upstanding version of Americana um, through war propaganda yeah, unlike um, actors like Jimmy Stewart, who who did get to fight in the war, mm-hmm. Reagan um, didn't have the chance. He, as you say, he was nearsighted. He was also thirty-one, and he had um, dependents as well. So it was uh, difficult. They they Warner tried to get him off, but they 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 you know they had him on the list, and they, and they eventually got him in, but they. They couldn't really do anything with him, so he went back to Warner's um, sort of motion picture unit, and he created uh, propaganda films. Films, and he and this also pulls into not only Reagan's image, but Reagan's uh, style and ability. Like he's able to narrate these films, like mm-hmm. Beyond the Line of Duty and uh, Target Tokyo, and and he's he's able to be in uh, films about. Um, Offices and having shows and things like that. There's, and there's a sense that Re- Reagan ha- embodies Americanness because he has these qualities that 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 other people don't have. And yet, and even though he had failed somewhat in his early uh, early career to to emerge as a star, is in in his early career and in the in the war and in the war movies that he makes. There's a, there's a sense that you know. Um, that he comes to exemplify Americanness, but the difficult thing I think, e- even in this period, is that he does remain an FDR Democrat. Right. And you know, his father, who had been a shoe salesman, was an FDR Democrat. When his brother Neil Reagan decided to become a Republican, they used they used to have long um, arguments about you know why he became a, a Republican and why the Republicans were were wrong wrong at the time. So unlike you know, people like Ayn Rand at this time who were supporting, um, you know, the no hope for Republican candidates against the great uh, FDR <laughs> at this, uh, this particular time. Um, Reagan was an, was an FDR Democrat, and and the the even at this time, you know, the the big government had won the war. Big government had um, saved the American economy, and there wasn't this this. Um, tension between big government and some forms of collectivism with Reagan's own images as as, as embodying uh, Americanism. So we'll we'll touch on kind of a bit more on the war and post-war uh, in a little bit but can Vaughn can we just bring it back a little bit and can you just maybe explain the kind of Hollywood during the 30s and the kind of studio systems and the kind of the politics of, of Hollywood during that time? Right, yeah. Um, so it was a studio system, as you said, which um, essentially means that there there were, I believe, eight major studios um, throughout the the 30s that really kind of dominated. Mm-hmm. And um, there were two major inventions in film in the 30s, well, in, in the long 30s, that... Mm-hmm really kind of 
we're very innovative for the industry. So in 27, um, you have the introduction of sound. And in 30-something, 30, 32, um, Technicolor, I think Technicolor started in 32 and then really became more mainstay in 35 and 36. Mm-hmm. Um, and these really kind of, um, they were very fast developments uh, that really revolutionized the studio or this Hollywood so that it could become the studio era um, mm-hmm. of the 40s that we know is like golden age Hollywood. Um, so Hollywood had its own kind of political agenda in the 30s, in my opinion. Um, the, the depression obviously dropped sales of, of box office films. Um, people couldn't really afford to go. Um, but the government really pushed people to find that kind of escapism in Hollywood. And in this time period, the films being produced were um, really unique and you wouldn't necessarily believe this, um, but during during the depression, um, most of the films that were being, being made, like you have like Grapes of Wrath and like um, every film just went out of my head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but But you have films that are really centralized on community efforts and um, people distrusting the government, um, which does kind of track because it is the depression and the government kind of put them there. And FDR encouraged people to go to cinemas as a form of escapism. And he encouraged it even more and very ardently during the war um, to keep morale. And also because Hollywood was producing this very American material that we're talking about with Reagan uh, in B films as this all American type who's showing the good side of Americanism. Um, In this period though, you also have a lot of populist cinema that is geared towards um, almost like upper working middle class. that if you just rally around each other, then you don't need a big government to, um, you don't need like a welfare system as long as the community can come together and kind of like work together. And that is really the core of of populist cinema is that traditional American values mean that anyone can make it. Um, and it's a very hopeful hopeful message of like it takes a village right Mm -hmm. so like this these these are the kind of films being made in the 30s um that really set up hollywood to be the propaganda machine during the war um now with the kind of revolutionary things that i was mentioning sound and and color um these were kind of difficult in the time period for cinemas to keep up with because cinemas would have to have the technology to show a sound film or show a, um, a color film. 
-hmm. So independent, independent filmmakers in the 20s and early 30s that couldn't really keep up with buying the new technology to make these films, they kind of fell off a bit. And that's where the studio era really starts, is that they're, they're bigger corporations. They can afford to buy this technology to make these films. And then you have the the vertical um the the vertical economic system uh that the studios kind of adopt where since they can afford the technology to make the films they can also afford the technology to put them in cinemas so the studios started buying cinemas and uh consolidating them into the vertical integration system Mm -hmm. um so they were then in charge of producing films creating the films distributing the films mm -hmm. and the the publicity for the films um and that too really in a in a secondary sense um made them the 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 powerhouse of propaganda because they were in charge of disseminating the message creating the message um and all of that so that was all very rambling but that's what hollywood looked like in the 30s leading into the war effort and leading into the 40s where we get the kind of golden age of cinema um with the studios as just these unstoppable powerhouses and monopolies um and they had a lot more control over the actors than they would obviously later on when they were basically signing actors up for you know a seven-year deal, for instance, and paying them sort of, you know, a, a set wage or whatever it might be, and you know, rather than, you know, you get later on where film stars are essentially more sort of independent of the studios, whereas back then it was a, a lot more tied to this studio uh, production, the studio uh, system. So I think that's maybe important to kind of just set and scene when we later on get into um, the Screen Actors Guild, which. Mm -hmm. uh, which we'll touch on shortly. So that that's kind of, I suppose, the kind of the 1930s of, of Hollywood. Once Reagan kind of, once the war's over and Reagan kind of gets back more into the, the, the sort of Hollywood side of things, I guess Hollywood and America in general, in general is a little bit different. We have Reagan speaking out against, you know, anti-fascism, etc. He does then sort of go on to start speaking about you know, anti-communism, and obviously there is some clashes there just kind of with the more um, communist sympathizers within kind of Hollywood in the kind of post-war uh, years. Could you maybe just expand a little bit on the kind of political landscape in Hollywood after the war and how maybe Reagan's own views compared um, to some of the other views going on in Hollywood at the time? Toby, do you want that one or do you want me to do it? Um, I, yeah, I would say that um, Reagan... I mean, Reagan, Reagan's political education and development of political education is aided by the fact that Jane Weinman introduces him to members of the SAG board. Mm -hmm. And through um, the SAG board, and, and, and actually Jane Weinman's, the first thing she says is that, oh, here's this guy, um, Ronald Reagan, he's going to be president of, of SAG. And, and the guys thought, oh, this is quite presumptuous but once they met reagan they 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 basically understood that 
you know, he has all this charisma and he was a quick study, you know, as he had been in his acting career, he, 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 he grasped the issues quickly. He was good at negotiating. He was good at details and which helped him to become eventually become president of uh, SAG in the forties and, and then be uh, reelected to the role um, annually and which, which helps Reagan to develop this sort of uh, a, a political outlook about um, improving labor rights among the actors. I think once once uh, SAG was initially uh, initiated, the Hollywood studios had much more power over actors and that the actors didn't have the same uh, bargaining power and leverage power. But once it was initiated, most of the, the top actors signed on to its guild charter, which really gave actors a renewed power in, in, in Hollywood. And I would say that that was in keeping this sort of uh, labor activist um, tenor that, that, that Reagan was taking was in keeping with his uh, general politics as, as, a, as a Democrat who cared about labor rights and uh, the working man. And SAG really, a lot of it was, it wasn't necessarily for these well-paid actors, even people like uh, Reagan himself, who were on sort of thousands a, a year. It was a lot for a lot of the day players mm-hmm. in Hollywood at the time who were, who were very poor and made you know, a few dollars for, for the work. And they even rarely worked as well. So yeah, it was, it was, it was um, hugely important at the time for, for actors and, and 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 it doesn't veer away from Reagan's early political um, views until Reagan encounters the intransigence of the the, the, the CSU um, sort of uh, labor dispute. Reagan he joined Hikas, which was a group of um, sort of people, players, actors who were involved in Hollywood, who were taking, um, they were taking opinions on many of the crucial issues that that were in government at the time. They were sort of anti the nuclear um, option, things like that. And it it, it involved people like um, like Roosevelt's son and a person called de Havilland. And, and and it was in many ways it was a liberal organization in keeping with the liberal politics that Reagan had held in, in, in his early life and early career. But he started to see creeping into these meetings were this idea that people were pro-communism. And, and, and once he found that out, I mean, Re- Re- what Reagan knew about communism probably, I mean, until then, could probably fit in a postage stamp. He sort of knew that capitalism was was good and communism was bad. He wasn't an he wasn't really an abstract thinker mm-hmm. in in those ways. But and and he hadn't really talked about communism through the war. He had seen he had seen the Soviet Union as a, as a, as an as an ally, although you know he 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 definitely represented um, American values. But it wasn't until these these sick-ass meetings. And the fact that, you know, that they, they made a pledge in, in these meetings on whether or not they were going to um, pledge to some key American values and to denounce um, sort of communism. 
but then if they found out that some members of the of the of Hikas weren't going to uh, denounce communism, uh, some some members started started to say that the the communist um, uh, policies were were better for people than 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 the policies in America, which which Reagan found incredibly peculiar, and people like. Roosevelt and de Havilland actually left Hikas completely, but it, it also it speaks to how liberal Reagan was at the time because he didn't leave until two months afterwards, so he hadn't really made this 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 bridge towards the the, the Reagan that we know as a as a sort of right wing firebrand. Mm-hmm. Right. Um... So, yeah, picking up with that a bit, around 45 and 46, um, for a little context of these kind of union disputes that were happening, um, Yahtzee, which is the International Alliance of Theater Stage Employees, and the CSU is the Conference of Studio Unions, they were really at odds in the 40s, uh, in 45 and 46. Um, and they were trying to, the, the CSU was trying to gain more kind of following in Hollywood and they represented more of the kind of set builders and lighting technicians and the, the kind of behind the scenes people, um, in Hollywood. And they were really vilified by the studio heads. Um, because their their views were much more liberal, and they they were a trade union. They wanted better working rights. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, the, the the studios had just utmost control over all of the production, um, and there was no one really to protect the workers. So the CSU saw it as their kind of calling to. Um, pick up where Yahtzee was falling because the Yahtzee was around since the late or since like 1890 um, I think 1893 actually um, and CSU thought that they were a failing union so they tried to get their foot in the door um, and when Reagan was vice president of the Screen Actors Guild in 46 uh, SAG publicly uh, encouraged actors to cross picket lines. Mm-hmm. And Reagan gave a speech um, to, act, to the actors of the Screen Actors Guild saying um, that it's not an actor's place to take sides in union disputes. Um, and a lot of historians really credit SAG's neutrality for the CSU's downfall. Um, and it really kind of reinforced the studio head's control over Hollywood um, because this was the only kind of challenge to their power and it was just crushed, absolutely. It also had Hollywood left um, all of the leftists in Hollywood really distracted for a while. And while they were fighting amongst themselves, studio heads were 
um, consolidating even more power. And that was also left unchecked, um, especially after 1946, when Congress flipped to Republican um, under FDR for the first time. Um, and there was no kind of congressional threat towards the monopolization of the studio heads. Mm -hmm. um, and this, this speech that Reagan gave is kind of pointed to as his end of association with Hollywood left. Um, and like that, like Toby's saying, like this, this kind of dispute that um, Reagan picked the side of neutrality instead of picking a side with a union mm -hmm. um, and this kind of departure from the Hollywood left is where his public political conservatism really started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and part of this, as Vaughan is touching, part of this really was the, 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 the way the CSU went about the dispute. They, they sort of, they talked about violence publicly the, 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 when the carpenters and painters were summarily fired, and um, one of the CSU members said that there there may be men hurt, there may be men killed before this is over, but we're in no mood to be pushed around by any by by anyone anymore. So there's this sense that the stakes are, are very high, and and mm -hmm. people might get hurt, you know, and and Reagan was called to a telephone and what and he claims that when he listened to the telephone his his life was threatened mm. which really shocked him at the the the, the virulence and, and he started to believe that there was some communist um influence in in in, in this the csu yeah there there were a lot of whispers that there were Moscow Moscow infiltrators in the CSU, um, and these this very kind of violent um, the violence that you're talking about. It really came to a head in October 1945 uh, when the set decorators that were on strike they were on strike for like six months at the time. Um, they clashed with. Uh, the, the anti-union kind of people and with police and security guards on set lots. Um, and it's, it's known as Hollywood's Black Friday or Bloody Friday um, because it became such a, such a violent and bloody riot in Hollywood. And um, Reagan was witness to a lot of this violence and it just tainted the CSU in his mind. So while he was publicly giving these addresses that actors shouldn't take sides, he was personally taking a side against the CSU and associating them with communism and violence um, that would kind of inform his later decisions as president of SAG, um, which he was, he became president when he filled in, um, he filled in for the role when the president stepped down in 45 or 46, um, I think late 45, and he stepped in in 46. And then, as you said, he was elected um, annually until 1952 as president um, because he was publicly standing up for 
actors, um, which in one sense is good, I guess, but in another sense, he was really abandoning the rest of the 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 crew that make films. Mm. Uh, so we kind of touched on a little bit on the kind of communism side a little bit and kind of Reagan's involvement in Screen Actors Guild. Um, I, Vaughn, I don't know if you want to introduce the kind of Hollywood hearings, the HUAC and Reagan's place within that because I, I think it's maybe a little bit kind of complex, maybe not completely one-sided as far as Reagan's feelings and all this, but maybe you could just introduce what the hearings are to begin with. Simon, I would love to. <laughs> this is my favorite topic. Um, genuinely, that sounded really sarcastic. But I love it. <laughs> it's probably because uh, Nixon was there, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely because of <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> nothing to do with my PhD. Um, okay, so... You're doing a PhD on Nixon? <laughs> yeah, didn't I tell you? <laughs> I'm so proud. <laughs> Sorry, I need to go home. <laughs> um, so, HUAC um, is more commonly just known as HUAC, um, which is a misnomer, fun fact, because right. it's the House Committee on Un-American Activities. But for some reason, people called it House Un-American Activities Committee, probably right. just for the acronym. Anyway, so HUAC. Um, in 19, for, so, okay, so in the setting of the, the strikes and, um, the Republican congressional wins in 1946, uh, leaving the, the kind of studio heads without a check in power, we had a Democratic president and a Republican Congress and, a very powerful Hollywood propaganda machine that really established itself in the war as the American propaganda machine. And the government worked closely with them, as we've talked about, to create this ideal Americana. So when um, the Republicans gained power in Congress, they needed... Um, they needed public backing for their policies. And the best way they they concluded to do that with was fear um, and fear of fascism and equating fascism with communism. And that's where a lot of the anti-communist, like the virulent anti-communism of the late 40s um, stemmed from. It was a Republican kind of power grab to get the nation on their side. Um, that later boiled over with the Korean War um, and Eisenhower coming to power in, what, 54? Um, or when was that? 52? 50, yeah, 52 he's elected, 53 he's inaugurated. Anyway, so virulent anti-communism is kind of the new national obsession in the late 40s. And one of the ways in which Congress knew they could get this message out there um, was by hijacking Hollywood. Mm. So um, a lot of senators 
and representatives started these whispers about the communists in Hollywood and um, infiltrating films to subvert messaging um, to a wide American audience of communist sympathy. And this really came to a head with the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, the MPAPAI, um, that Ayn Rand wrote for. Mm. She wrote her screen guides for screen guide for Americans, like condemning communism and exposing all of the ways that the the sneaky communists were subverting films. Um, they invited HUAC into Hollywood to investigate and get rid of all of the communists. And anti-communism wasn't new to America. It was just a, a renewed trend. Um, and because Hollywood just had these bloody riots with the unions, the studio heads were um, very welcoming for the committee to come in and kind of expose all of these alleged communists um, and again, consolidate power even more for the studio heads. So HUAC comes in in 1947, and they issue their first subpoenas in September. And Reagan, uh, as president of the Screen Actors Guild, volunteers to, um, one, report on the Screen Actors Guild to the FBI, and two, to testify as a friendly witness. Mm -hmm. So in his... Um, in his testimony in September of 47, he tries to paint Hollywood as this like source of good Americanism um, and says that they're doing what they can to stamp out the communists. And it's this very impassioned kind of speech, um, very similar to the ones that he gave before uh, in SAG. But HUAC wasn't ready to just take that kind of a face value. And they issued 11 subpoenas to, um, quote unquote, unfriendly witnesses or hostile witnesses. Um, one of them, Berthold Brecht, who's a um, playwright, he left the country before he had to testify. <laughs> um, so... We, we don't often hear about him anymore um, in terms of the Hollywood 10 uh, that it became. And the Hollywood 10 refused to testify. They said, this is absolutely a violation of our rights. We don't have to um, tell you anything about our political opinions when they were brought before Congress. Um, it, was, it was October of 1947 when they were... Um, present uh, and witnesses at the congressional hearings, and it brought Hollywood to a halt. Um, a lot of famous actors were in the resistance to it. Um, and showed up uh, in support of the 10. So you had all of these like really famous people in Washington um, 
kind of countering the um, testimony. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, so the um, studio heads had to make a statement. They had to say something because all of their kind of big names were now at odds with each other on these two extremes, either in support of um, Congress coming in and routing out the communists and publicly making them testify one way or another, pro or anti-communism. And then you had all of the other actors and unions saying that this is a violation of American rights. Um, so 50 executives met at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in November um, in New York. And they decided with Eric Johnston um, leading the, the kind of convention, um, they decided to create the blacklist. So the blacklist was um, a list barring the employment of alleged communists or proven, quote unquote, proven communists um, in Hollywood. And it, uh, it was really damning. Um, a lot of people beyond the Hollywood 10 were 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 barred from making a living um based on suspected political ideas which is it just sounds bizarre mm -hmm. um but nixon himself i mean as far as i understand it i think in in 1948 i think he was kind of opposed to the, the month nixon bill and said you know i as a citizen would hesitate to see any political party outlawed on the basis of its political ideology and then kind of later said that, you know, if he was asked if he was aware of kind of communist efforts within the Screen Actors Guild, he kind of said he, he kind of considered that hearsay and he didn't want to kind of partake in it. So it's, is, is it fair to say, at least in the sort of earlier days post-war, Nixon, uh, sorry, uh, Reagan was at least um, unsure of his place, kind of speaking out against communism within Hollywood? Um... Not necessarily, because as president of SAG, um, he didn't take a stand one way or another. Mm -hmm. Personally, he had a hard stance against crushing the freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, but where it mattered, as SAG head, he didn't. Mm -hmm. He didn't say anything. Yep. He left it neutral again, which is really mm -hmm. odd that Reagan wouldn't stand for the freedoms um, that later became, became kind of like his whole platform of mm -hmm. being the president for liberty. Um, well, it's, it's always the case with these, quite often the case, it's, oh, not, 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 not those freedoms, the freedoms I like, you know, that's quite often how these things are framed. Uh, sorry, Von, on you go. Um, well, speaking of this, this is actually, um, Reagan sent a letter to, um, one of the Hollywood 10's wives was being investigated by Hueck and she was put on a gray list, um, which was 
kind of a lesser enforced one by Hollywood um, elites. It was more like American Legion made this list of people who could potentially be communists. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the Hollywood Ten's wives was on it. And she wrote to um, the Screen Actors Guild for help because she was like, this is ridiculous, like, as most people felt at the time. And Reagan responded um, as president with a letter saying that they they wouldn't take sides. And I'm going to read a bit of his letter here. Um, The letter said, the Guild Board believes that all participants in the International Communist Party conspiracy against our nation should be exposed for what they are, enemies of our country and of our form of government. The Guild as a labor union will fight against any secret blacklist created by any group of employers. On the other hand, if any actor by his actions outside of union activities has so offended American public opinion that he has made himself unsaleable at the box office, the guild cannot and would not force any employer to hire him. That is the individual actor's personal responsibility and it cannot be shifted to this union. So he takes a very kind of diplomatic stance Mm. Um, with the Screen Actors Guild by saying we're against the blacklist, but we're not against communism, or we're we're not Mm -hmm. pro-communism. And it just kind of feeds into the the blacklist as a whole. Um, And that that kind of hysteria in Hollywood at the time. Um, This gray list actually uh, is really interesting because that's how he met Nancy. Right, his, his his wife, the first lady. Um, so that'd be his second wife. Yep. His second wife, yes. Um, she was an aspiring movie star, too, mm-hmm. and she got put on a gray list. And she had a lot of connections because her mother was an actress, um, a theater actress in Broadway, and Nancy started out in in Broadway, but she wanted to kind of break into the film industry, and she also had her eyes set on Reagan. Um, And she could have gotten herself off the gray list with her connections, but she specifically had a friend write to Reagan and ask him to to get her off the the gray list. So he Hmm. did a little digging and it wasn't her. It was another Nancy Davis. Right. Um, And he called and he was like, oh, like, it's not you. It's fine. Everything's all right. You're not on the gray list. And she wasn't happy with that because she wanted to meet him. Um, so she had her, like, agent or friend or whomever set up a dinner with Reagan. Um, and that was their first date was him telling her that she's not on the gray list. <laughs> Which is just, in a, like, an adorable little meet cute, isn't it? <laughs> I think all romances should start around communism one way or the other. I, um, <laughs> always in my life. So, um, sorry, I'll put on you go. Oh, no, no, you're good. I, I was just going to make uh, make a mark that in case people hadn't heard of the Munt Nixon, Munt Nixon bill, it was also known as the Subversive Activities Control Act. And I think, Toby, you were actually one of the co-sponsors on that in 1948. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, Al Jahirsi did it. So, I mean... <laughs> I mean, there. I, I don't know. Like in terms of Hollywood, like, I don't know if there were more communists in Hollywood than, than, the, than the vast population. But I guess just, they were just more high profile, so they had yeah. to go after them much more. So, so that's a really interesting thing about this is that 
um, HUAC had these hearings in 1947 and box office sales plummeted by like 20% in the two months around these hearings, hmm. um, which is why the Waldorf Astoria statement um, created the blacklist because the studio heads felt that they had to do something to match the public kind of anger towards communism. Um, and that kind of helped to to fix the, the box office sales, but there were other things going on with Hollywood. Um, the like television was becoming much bigger then. So um, there, there were just other kind of economic factors for the box office sales slipping. But a big one was the, the communist sympathy uh, or alleged communist sympathy in Hollywood. Um, and all of the Hollywood 10, I believe all of them, were arrested for contempt of Congress for not answering questions. Um, and a lot of them did serve jail time. So that uh, kind of challenged public perception because people wanted to um, support the anti-communist kind of hearings and, and searches and everything um, as McCarthyism kind of ramped up around 50, uh, like a little later on. Um, but people weren't sure how they felt about people being arrested for contempt of Congress. Um, and that led to HUAC coming back to Hollywood for their second round of um, investigations and trials in 1952. So in that period between 47 and 52, um, you had the, the blacklist really destroying people's careers and consolidating power towards the studio heads even more than it already was. Um, it was a very toxic environment for creatives. Um, and that's definitely seen in the films that were being created. How did Reagan's career kind of progress after the war then? How, how did it kind of move? So what shape after did it take? the war, Reagan, I mean, he was an expensive star for Warner Brothers. He, he only did nine more pictures for Warner Brothers after the war. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he, he obviously he split his time between his, some of his SAG duties and get, getting into labor politics. But he really did want to carry on as a, as a star in, in Hollywood and, and looked for roles. But they just didn't seem to be coming, especially in that sort of early period. A lot of the sort of noirs and thrillers that were starting out that were fit for people like Bogart, um, emerging actors in the in the fifties like Brando and um, uh, James Dean, people just starting Sweden. They called for much more nuance, more depth uh, from a from an actor. They called for people who could sort of carry roles that weren't that were less um, rigid. And and I don't and I think Reagan found himself not being able to. To keep up in 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 that um, atmosphere, I would say that one of the really um, sort of bad movies that he did was the that Hayden Girl in, in 1947, which was a critical and box office flop. I think um, the media said that it it that the Warner Brothers had dug from the gutter in order to you know put this put this up. The the Reagan was um, he was basically 
um, attacked in the in the in the media for for, for being poor and in the role. And um, Reagan had problems with 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 Warner because he he, he started. Um, you know some of the scripts that he started to get he he basically said i i can just basically phone these roles in like i don't know why they're giving me these scripts um he he was unhappy with warner about hayden girl but the warners you know thought that it was his fault that he he had put on a a, a bad performance but he felt betrayed by warner because warner had, had uh, said that he would going to give give him better scripts so his um film careers really in many ways starts the stall which is also at the time when Jane Wyman who's who's um being sort of um touted for for nominated for an Oscar for her for her role in, in Johnny Belinda and and there's a sense that as her star is rising Reagan's is falling and, and their relationship starts to fray which leads to him eventually marrying um, Nancy Davis because um, she's with uh, Lou Avery's and, you know, they're talking about acting and, you know, their future careers and, and, uh, you know, emoting and being thespians. And Reagan is, his his acting career is stalling and he's getting much more involved in politics with with Jamie Wyman. She just wasn't interested in politics like that. And so there's this, there's this, there's this. Um, I don't know. There starts to be a, a real hole in Reagan, and 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 this is also around the time when uh, Warner sends Reagan to England in order to um, complete a, a film. And in England, Reagan notices that that the, the society is a sort of cradle to grave um, sort of socialist state, you know. He thinks that the Marshall Plan that is being touted for England and the rest of Europe is is, is too generous, that it's exploiting American workers. He starts to really see a society that he doesn't want America to become. And and as his finances are getting um, more difficult because um, he eventually does the last couple movies with with Warner, he his 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 contracts at Universal run out, so he, he gets more and more into debt, and he's also divorced, so he's he's a little bit depressed. He he and he starts to see the tax man as as as, as a as a real antagonist in his life, and starts to talk about how you know the the the, the um, big government and the big bureaucracies. Are really sort of these faceless uh, masks, and and then that he starts to feel that the what they're imposing on him is 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 totally unfair. So it's this confluence of factors that his waning um, acting career, his his diving into the the CSU issue and then SAG politics, that that starts to fray his um, association with the with the liberals. And um, he he doesn't really get many sort of future roles at this time. So eventually, what he has to do is go into to television. And television in the fifties, I mean, I don't know. Like people talk about television almost in the same way in the seventies and eighties, but you know, it was seen by many actors as a place where has-beens go. You know, mm-hmm. like um, the, the 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 films 
were places where you could express yourself and things like that. But the and I think, but television was coming to the fall as Vaughn is touch touched on. It was affecting the revenues of. It was affecting the revenues of Hollywood, and um, Reagan initially, although he's being touted for this general electric theater thing, he's not really sure whether or not he should do it. But I think what really aids this is that he eventually gets a contract with the studio for for a lot of money, even after being let go by Warner. And then he has an accident on the baseball pitch where he's running, and I think he tears a ligament, and he basically knows that he can't act in any films in the coming season. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's basically up for him. So it, he's quite lucky to get the General Electric deal. And at General Electric, he builds an audience like uh, several times the size of the audience he had in, in, in Hollywood. Um, yeah, no, everything you just said is really spot on. Um, that leg injury, actually, just a kind of additional thing there. He, he had a triple fa- fracture, I think, um, on top of tearing a ligament. And he was getting medical care for that for many years. Um, And one of the things that really put the final nail in the coffin of Hollywood for him was that no Hollywood elites or executives or anything, none of his friends from Hollywood came to visit him in the hospital. And he just felt very alienated um, from the whole Hollywood community, specifically because of that injury. and I think that really kind of pushed him to leave. And another fun little fact, I, I like this fact, I think it's hilarious. He went to Vegas first before signing on with General Electric. Um, and he got this like $30,000 deal for 15 minutes of um, stage time a night for like a year, I think, um, with MCA. Uh, whose agenda he helped push in while he was SAG president um, in Hollywood, and he really he really boosted profits for MCA. So they kind of helped him out later in in his career, both in Vegas and um, in the '60s strikes that we're, we'll talk about later. Um, he was doing this like 15 minute slapstick comedy routine in Vegas. <laughs> that's just yeah, he's, washed, he's completely washed up then yeah <laughs> that's that's where that's where it went um and i think that's what also kind of pushed him to do television because he was like okay i can't do this like, <laughs> like i could kind of slum it in hollywood but i can't be in las vegas because vegas at the time was not the vegas that we think it is it was mm-hmm. very very much more uh linked with the mob and organized crime syndicates and uh illegal gambling and, and stuff of the like so it was really a bad look for him um i basically don't recognize vegas before celine dion celine, celine dion came along as far as i'm concerned that was uh... for me it's liberace liberace <laughs> <laughs> comes through it's not vegas no that that uh, thing that, that ronnie was in it wasn't vegas it wasn't vegas um, do we want to move on to uh, how Reagan's kind of career in politics moved to the right now, or do you want to talk more on the Screen Actors Guild side of things? Uh, probably to the right. Okay, so 
we kind of touched on it there that, or we touched on it previously that Reagan is starting to kind of move a bit more to the right uh, politically. Can we kind of talk about how someone who started out as a as a Democrat and who had these debates at the kitchen table with Republicans kind of moves further to the right, becomes a Republican? And I think at one point, I think he proclaims that he didn't leave the Democratic Party, the party left him. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, Reagan, he co-signed um, something for Hollywood for Truman. So in, in 48, he's still basically a Democrat. But I guess um, he's, he. I think in the the... the the issue he ha- he had with the the communists in the CSU, the issues he had with communists in liberal organizations, and he he was a he did see himself as a Cold War liberal, and and many Cold War liberals like Schlesinger were very anti-communist, but he did not believe that the, the liberals had done enough, which mm. further radicalized him. He he had personal debts he thought of himself as someone who'd worked very hard he, he had personal debts and he was being sort of um battered by the tax man so that that you know his old kitchen table issues started to turn him more conservative as well and i think he became more and more disillusioned with the the federal bureaucracy that that seemed to take hold post-war he had that trip to England where he saw a society that he didn't want uh, America to become uh, he met people like uh, Robert Montgomery and George Murphy who were both former SAG presidents and they would always complain about the the liberals and the democrats and how much they were putting m- money into social programs that they weren't interested in and they thought that private enterprise should do instead and uh, he just started to abhor this um, further interference um, by, by by the government. And 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 interestingly, he actually he actually had endorsed and I think campaigned a little bit for um, Gahagan Douglas in her Senate campaign against Richard Nixon. And he actually did dislike Nixon. He thought Nixon was a crook. He was a opportunist. <laughs> he didn't have any uh, <laughs> any core values, you know. Oh, he was wrong about that one, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, in, in, in years afterwards, he would be one of the only conservatives defending Nixon after Watergate. So he, he did like a lost cause, but yeah, at this time, he, he, he sort of disliked Nixon even in in '52, you know, um, he he did in the campaign between Eisenhower and um, Adlai Stevenson. He saw Stevenson. He saw Stevenson had some points. Stevenson was a clever guy, you know, the egghead, as many people as called him. Reagan had more conservative fiscal leanings, and he still he still disliked um, Nixon. But as the years went by, and eventually. When he got this General Electric gig, he became a conservative. And and one thing is interesting about General Electric as a company, although it was a company you know with, associated with its own um, u- unions and, and and things like that, it it was it its executives were conservative. They wanted to have a show where they could have an all American figure talk about. Um, core American values that would help to stop the government from interfering 
in their business and um, they wanted to try to um, it, sort of inculcate a feeling amongst its workers. Reagan not only did the television show, but he went to, he spent hours and days at different plants giving speeches about um, the, the government overreach, giving speeches about taxes. And I think he, he met, he met a workforce who, you know, had been made um, whole by a lot of the union organizing and a lot of the legislation that FDR had put forward, but who started to feel like the, some of the social programs that were being run were against their against their core core values, and it, it and it, it's sort of the same people who would gravitate towards um, Nixon and see Nixon as a sort of almost like a petty bourgeois, you know, hometown uh, hero, a guy who represented them. And, and, and I think they saw Reagan and, and, and in, in these GE um, meetings and met many in the same way, but Reagan sort of had more charisma. He loved, um, he just loved politics. He would love go, he would kiss babies. He would walk around plants. He would shake people's hands. He always had a, a joke um people said that he was the he always had a great spin on dirty jokes even though you know in the future he would sort of pat pattern that down but yeah he he, he see he was very he was a people person and people liked him and were interested in him um like some of the workers wives were sort of more interested in him than the workers but he would be able to turn the workers around so yeah he, he his charisma and his his um, all all American spiel really came to the fall in in the in the GG television show, and he wasn't really the the the, the General Electric ex executives didn't really try to um, give him scripts. You know, like they had a view, and he seemed to basically agree with them. And he he created the speeches and the and the scripts for the television show by himself and with some other writers, but not with the General Electric executives. And he gave them the show that they, that they wanted. And I guess by 1960, he's campaigning for Nixon. And, you know, like he's at the point now where he's looking at a candidate like John F. Kennedy and he's, he's singing, you know, he, you know, he has a nice face. There's a, there's mm -hmm. a, there's a sense that this is a, a personable candidate, but behind all of that is is Marxism. So this is you know, and yeah. and you know we know that Kennedy was a, was a centrist, but mm -hmm. you know, that's where Reagan was by 1960 politically. Do you think the success of JFK maybe helped um, on a kind of style basis? Helped Reagan kind of. Formalized Reagan, Reagan he, he 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 never lost his love for FDR. Maybe hit the policies mm -hmm. um, he he no longer appreciated. But the fireside chats, the the the, the relationship FDR seemed to have with the people mm -hmm. that, that all inspired Reagan. And and I and I can't. Oh, I don't know this for sure, but I don't doubt that. Um, uh, JFK's television presence was something that Reagan was uh, attracted to, and given that he worked in television mm -hmm. himself. I think just just building off some of that, this like growing conservatism that he had from General Electric 
Um, and like Toby said, like meeting the people on the ground and touring the country for eight weeks at a time um, for, for like eight years from 54 to 62, it really informed a lot of his um, like personal political ideas. But he was also pressured at the time by um, the president of GE to read more and form his own philosophy yes, around yeah. the things that he was saying um, and around their kind of opinions uh-huh. so that he could be more eloquent in these speeches and, and be more educated and be able to pull out like a quote from a philosopher at the time. Um, just to give GE even an even like better kind of image, but that that kind of pressure there, um, it he was more well he was well read, and yeah, uh, and GE just of- didn't just have these for Reagan. They had leaflets, and um, yeah. Reagan got access to Regis Digest, which he got some of his opinions from, and and a conservative. Um, journal called human affairs which mm-hmm. um, the, the executives gave gave to reagan and many of their other um of their other workers so i guess we can blame ge for there was one other there there was a a speech that he gave um while he was working for general electric at the waldorf astoria hotel in new york where the blacklist was made 11 years before um, in 1959, he gave this speech called Business, Ballots, and Bureaus. And it was just a diatribe around uh, against bureaucracy and high taxes. And um, it the, this you, was one of the... You wrote something very similar yourself for university, didn't you, Bill? Oh, yeah. That was my personal statement. Decentralization, <laughs> <laughs> I remember. It's one of the... <laughs> Um, sorry sorry, Vaughn on you go no regret Um, in this speech and lots of other ones like it he was redefining in a way quote unquote redefining um, what freedom meant and this is one of Reagan's like best qualities in my opinion is his, his use of other people's language to twist it for his um, agenda and maybe that comes from his early years in broadcasting and like honing these skills through Hollywood and SAG and, and all of the public speeches that he gave but his use of the word freedom was used to echo FDR and the, the kind of liberal left ideas of, of liberty for everyone um, but while FDR used it in a way to say that like um unrestricted private enterprise limits american freedoms reagan twisted these kind this kind of idea of freedom to say that unrestricted taxes in a way on these businesses was a restriction of freedom um and he really used very expertly used the left's language to defend his own conservatism um, in a way that that not many other conservatives at the time were very adept at doing. And this speech at the Waldorf Astoria in 1959, um, it got Nixon's attention. 
and Nixon wrote to him congratulating him on such an expertly done speech. Hmm. Which is a fun fact. I can't think of any higher praise, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I think Toby, you'd faint if you got such a letter. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite an image. Um, So I suppose we are getting towards the end of the show now. Uh, I guess maybe the final thing to touch on is kind of looking back at the 1960 strike, which uh, I believe Reagan kind of came back to being a president after being away previously from that. I think it's not maybe something you necessarily think of with Reagan, but at that moment, he I think he kind of conditioned them and asked them for kind of permission to strike. And they did indeed. And I think it was built around residuals. Vaughn, could you maybe just expand a little bit more on on the strike and kind of what was happening at the time? Yeah. Um, So in in the 60s, um, Reagan had been out of SAG for about eight years at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was very firmly in television and everything. But the Screen Actors Guild asked him to come back for this this battle over residuals in 1959. Um, so there's there's a lot of Hollywood politics behind this, but to kind of keep it simple, um, the the uh, studios and um, distributors were keeping the residuals from films Mm. and actors wanted that payment. Um, And it was, it was centered around the kind of television debate, which is why Hollywood asked Reagan to come back because when films were shown on television, there was no kind of legal recourse for that. So Mm -hmm. distributors were just pocketing the money and actors were like, we, we want in on this, like you're Mm. using our image, whatever. Um, so Reagan comes back, um, and at the time he was a part owner of General Electric Theater, and he had a lot of stake in MCA, who, like I said earlier, he, he helped them, um, in kind of, allegedly, it's, it's very disputed about what actually went on in these talks, but it's, it's alleged that Reagan cut um, a kind of illegal, sketchy deal with MCA in the the fifties um, to proc- procure them a foothold of television in Hollywood, and that that kind of deal early on um, allowed Hollywood to break into television. So it was mutually beneficial, um, and when he was asked about it later, like when he was president, people were asking him what happened with this MCA Wasserman deal. Um, And he's like, oh, well, I don't really remember the specifics. I just know that everyone ended up happy. And it's like, "Mm, I don't know about that. Um, But anyway, so MCA in the 60s deal, they had recently acquired Universal and Paramount's old movies. And MCA was a television-based company. So they had a lot of stake in this dispute that they didn't want to pay actors for um for the 
yeah, right, I think it's around the idea of they've been paid once, why are they getting paid multiple times for one job kind of thing, I think is maybe how Hollywood was trying to position it. Yeah. Um, and so he comes back and he should have recused himself because he has a lot of stake in television at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did not. Uh, and the, when, when the talks broke down, the Screen Actors Guild struck um, struck this like allegedly industrial wide deal with the major studios, but not with MCA connected Universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yahtzee, um, they organized studio employees to cross the actors' picket lines. Mm-hmm. And Reagan denounced them and said that their, quote, a lousy damn strike breaker is their president, um, Richard Walsh. Mm-hmm. Even though Reagan, as president of SAG eight years or, or 10 years earlier, um, was silent on the matter and encouraged crossing picket lines. So it, the, the whole thing is very bizarre. Um, if you don't remember that Reagan at the time had so much stake in MCA coming out on top in, in these union deal, uh, union dispute deals. Uh, and it was the first strike that SAG ever had. Um, and it lasted six weeks and they eventually settled on a $2.65 million um, residual fee in favor of the actors. Mm-hmm without mca having to pay a dime right so reagan looks like a hero for the actors but also in his interests um keeps all of the the television kind of Mm -hmm. sweet deals for his side it was very smooth i guess that was uh part of his skill as a i guess as a quote-unquote politician at that time um (laughs) yeah um, and he he very publicly kind of opposed the the anti-monopoly rulings that came um, shortly after this that mm-hmm. really broke the studio era completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in 1960 is when the blacklist f- formally ended um, when they gave screen credits to Dalton Trumbo on Spartacus and Exodus. Right. Um, so Reagan, like that drove Reagan even further right and this kind of win in the union battles, I guess, kind of just reinforced his his conservatism um, at the time. Toby, is there any truth in the rumor that you're going to go and strike over residuals on the podcast? Oh, wow. That's that's coming down the pan. How are we going to split up, guys? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean... And that just leaves Reagan as basically, you know, because he's free from union duties now. And it just leaves him as a conservative activist. He's read, you know, he's read the books. He's read Hayek. He's read William F. Buckley. He's campaigning for JFK. He's calling, no, he's campaigning for Nixon. He's calling JFK uh, beyond, beyond the tasseled here is this, 
is a is a little um Karl Marx is mm-hmm. saying things like that. And so he's he's now and he's he he says this big thing about Big Brother and how Big Brother controls life. I mean, he he's he's very much within this this and not even just the Eisenhower conservatism, you know, because in, in that period they used to say that you know if you come out against um, social security and employment insurance and mm-hmm. you know, and um, welfare, you, you know, you, the conservative just couldn't win. This is the period of a choice, not not an echo. It's the period of the conscience of a conservative, and there's a real. Um, there's a real political debate raging within the conservative uh, Republican Party, you know, with people like Rockefeller one side, and and Reagan is, I mean, he's not just a conservative; he's 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 on the side of the of the right leaning conservatives. So so he's he's at the the really the furthest edge, and then you have um, Goldwater going out, really being a it's a sort of barnstorming campaign. He, he he wins by a hair, and then he's he's actually running against Lyndon Johnson, and he doesn't really have a chance. Mm-hmm. But and then you know a group of businessmen say, well, you know, Goldwater, he's he's kind of done. Maybe we should switch to Reagan. They don't mm-hmm. decide to switch to Reagan, but then they have Reagan do his speech to try to help um, Goldwater along, mm-hmm. which is the time for choosing speech yep. that he gives. And the, in the time for choosing speech, his his real his you know he's basically outlining you know, the founding fathers knew the government can't control the economy without controlling the people, and they knew when a government sets out to do that, it must use force and coercion to achieve its purpose. So you have to come to a time for choosing. You and I are told we must choose between a left or right, but I suggest that there is no such thing as left or right. There is only an up or down. Up to man's age-old dream, the maximum of individual freedom consistent with order, or down to the ant heap to, of totalitarianism. And so clearly, you know, he he he'd made that bridge to and 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 in the in, in the speech, you can see it's you know it's not there's not there's no abstract views there. It's it's again it's this. It's the the same Reagan that that existed, you know, in his early movies. It's there's this, there's a clear good and evil, you know. There's a there's a, there's a villain, there's a protagonist, and um, so the, his his just um, constitution had had got round to this conservatism in, in in many ways because it reflected a lot of the sort of down home values that he had and, and you know he saw himself as someone even during the great depression who had managed to find work who's sort of pulled himself from his bootstraps going to eureka college where you know so few students at the time went to become graduates at the time uh, he established himself in uh, hollywood in a difficult business in many ways like ayn Rand had established himself and he, he sort of I think he transitioned over this long period, due in part to his engagement with with SAG, with the unions, and 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 his his own sort of waning fortunes in in that period after the the war, that really lead to him becoming a conservative, and that's really where we leave this uh, Reagan in in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is quite an interesting transformation when you think that 
what end of sixty six he wins the um, uh, election to become uh, governor of California. Yeah, um, people asked him, you know, you should become governor governor of Hollywood, which was just like a <laughs> a, a faux position. You know, he didn't really want um, people people both on for the Democrats and the Republicans to try to pitch him things. They try to pitch him the a, a Senate seat in California, which mm-hmm. he didn't really want at the time. But yeah, so he became more and more more political. And I, I, I th- also think that he thought he was better at politics than he he he, he was mm-hmm. as an actor as well, which was part of the reason why he transitioned from from acting to, to mm-hmm. politics. Uh, Vaughn, is there anything you wish to add about uh, your hero Ronald Reagan? Um. Oh God. <laughs> Don't even want to acknowledge that. Um. <laughs> I one of the just a cute little anecdotal thing about Reagan. Um, before he ran as governor, um, when he was just kind of establishing himself as this kind of political figure, giving speeches, um, a lot of people told him like, "You you could run for office," and he's like, "Oh, like I'm I'm highly honored, but I don't think I'm right for the part." And it was this cute kind of thing. Yeah. And his, his daughter <laughs> told him, his daughter told him once, like, hey, you could be governor. And he was like, well, I could be president. And it was this very, like, sassy kind of remark, and he laughed it off. Um, and I just think that's very cute. <laughs> it's one of my favorite little anecdotes about Reagan. Um, it's, it's nice that you managed to find a podcast in which remarks by Republicans you find cute because that's very much how Toby and I see most Republicans. In the I sort of think that Reagan's sort of easier to, to do that with. He he seems yeah. you know simple to an extent. You know mm-hmm. he, he he's uh he's like cherub cheeked. You know he's this kind of almost like um he he comes out as a football star. He mm-hmm. he represents a lot of things about America. Um, that people like and, and some some of the highest values of simple people kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And yeah, there's a yeah. I think he's very much I think he really does live up to that kind of earlier view of him as this kind of Hollywood Superman. Yeah, yeah. He definitely. really embodies that that kind of sweeter side of American um nostalgia and self perception. Um not saying anything about his kind of politics. It's a very different game. But I think just the way he presents himself, like you say, he is kind of like the simple all-American guy. He's, much as he was as an actor, he's very, like, one-dimensional in mm. in his kind of pers- persona. Um, and of course, coming from small-town America and Illinois, I suppose a little bit like Clark Kent coming from small-town Kansas, you know. There's, exactly. He wasn't yeah. Yeah. He wasn't born into a, into a sort of Hollywood house, as it were. Yeah. Um, right. I think we should probably be closing up there. Um, is there any final remarks either you guys got on the kind of the Reagan Hollywood years? Obviously, the next episodes, uh, not to give any spoilers, but we shall be <laughs> looking at the more uh, Reagan and religion side of things. Uh, is there anything just on the kind of overall image of him in Hollywood and his kind of career and his journey, which you think really does kind of crystallize? later in his presidency is there anything you can kind of take away and go yeah 
it's kind of clear to see that that's the man that became because of X, Y, or Z. There's um, another anecdote that when he was still, when he left SAG, um, he left because he wanted to focus on his screen career. And he had been president for five years. He had been the kind of spokesman and poster child for all of the the kind of union advancements that, um, or guild advancements at the time. And a producer said to him that he would never make it big again as an actor because um, all of the producers and studio heads just saw him as the suit and tie across the conference table that was slamming down their trade deals. Um, And they said, that's death. You'll never be an actor again. And that's when he really switched to the kind of suit and tie public uh, engagement side of Hollywood Mm. and made Hollywood politics his his life um, at the time. And that that never stopped. I think that's a that's a kind of very indicative thing Mm. um, that that producer said to him. Yeah. And I think for for fans um, going on in the future, I think. Many people will see Reagan's career summed up by like a film like Bedtime for Bonzo, you know, where he he's not even the lead to a a a, a monkey who actually died on the day of the premiere. Oh, yeah, but I mean, but he he was he was more than that in his acting career. You know, like films like King's Row, yeah. where he really did try to try to do more try to think about his roles he, he was someone who who was a uh, almost like a character actor and a bb first actor but he, he he cared about his craft and that you know there are some movies um worth going back to uh, dark victory movies like um girls in prohibition mm-hmm. um the newt rockney which is you know all american which is very you know reagan there's, there's, there's movies worse, that, uh, you know. Yeah. There's, I suppose it's interesting when you, you know, the same way you can go back and look at someone like Donald Trump through the eyes of media representation prior to his presidency, you know, whether it be appearing in Home Alone or whether or not being a certain name checked in The Sopranos, I guess there's a, a way to kind of go back and look at the, the man who would become president, as it were, as you were saying, Toby, by looking at maybe some of his previous films or looking at um, some of the maybe speeches he gave early, earlier on in his career. It's it's interesting to have that public persona prior to them sort of establishing the point, which probably made them the most famous. Um, I suppose we should probably be leaving that there because the podcast is uh, running a little long today, but it was really fascinating uh, listening to you guys speaking about Reagan. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, we've got two more episodes to go um i i guess i i guess once we get to the final episode we'll probably have our summation on what reagan kind of was and kind of is and our own thoughts on it i guess it's probably best to leave that until the final one so i think for for now we'll just say that uh we've got two more episodes on reagan and i'm sure it'll be as interesting as this one has been so um toby vaughn thank you guys so much for joining us yeah thanks guys thank you and uh, yeah, if you want to uh, 
check out any of the other episodes we've we've done. We've obviously done quite a few different ones up and now. We've done Nixon Trilogy, etc. We've done uh, quite a lot on kind of the 60s and 70s, and now we're we're starting to transition to a little bit later into uh, into some stuff in the 70s and 80s on, on onwards. So, uh, yeah, please check out our previous episodes, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts, and uh, we'll be back in the near future with another episode. So from Toby, Vaughn, and myself, Simon, thanks for listening, and uh, see you soon. Bye. Bye.